In that song, such a comfort, it is our personal testimony. And as we sing it with greater understanding of God's grace, when we come to that final shore and we pass over that Jordan into the land of glory, uh, we know that it's been Him all along. And the more we can understand that in this side of, of glory, the more comforting and at peace we'll be, not having to fear when that time comes. He's done it all from the beginning to the end. I'm taking our text this morning from Matthew chapter 19 as we continue through there, but I am a little out of order. I was coming up to the text and I found this little section of verses 13 through 15 and decided to hold that off to a baptism next Lord's Day, how fitting that would be. So I'm going to jump right over into verse 16 through 22 today. I am going to read through 16 through 30, so if you join there with me in hearing or the reading of God's Word, Matthew 19, 16 through 30. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, and therefore what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Our gracious Father, we come to this text today and We pray that your spirit would have full reign over it into our lives, weaving it into the hearts of your people. And we pray that we would identify with that which we need to identify, and that your spirit would bring conviction and bring encouragement and bring us to grace in fuller measure. And I pray if there is one here that is under the false delusion, false pretense, of their own heart's condition before God, that it is safe, but it is not. We pray that you would work in that heart, bringing them to yourself through the glorious 
grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would minister the Word now with your Spirit to our lives and pray that you would shape us and to conform us into the image of Christ, putting away all of our idols and embracing our God alone this day. We pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have heard, whether it be true or not, that one of the ways in which to catch monkeys, and you might want to keep this in your mind should you see a stray monkey in your backyard, uh, is to get a coconut and drill a hole in the coconut just so that the monkey's hand can get into the hole. Nail it to a tree and put a sweet bait inside of the coconut. And when the monkey comes in and begins to go after the bait, he reaches his hand into the coconut and he grasps that which he desires to have, but he can't remove his hand from the coconut. He will not let it go. And he will keep his hand fisted up to the point where his captors can take him captive at great cost to him. To be free, all he needs to do is simply let go. But the monkey instead, his greed will cost him his life. Now, I'm afraid that monkey describes too much the way we are in America. Our greed, our wealth, our affluence has become our biggest idol. And it's hard to convince someone who has everything that one day, perhaps even tomorrow, he will have nothing. Americans live in the wealthiest country, and I'm including us all here. We live in the wealthiest country and the most prosperous time in human history. In all of the world, and the richer we get, the more we want. We can never seem to get our fill or have enough. We have such a love for money, or really what it boils down to is what money can buy, that we pursue money at the expense of what really matters in life. This is why it's become increasingly difficult to evangelize the lost in our land. When you're wealthy, you simply don't see your need to be saved. Life may seem good, and all the things and the comfort that money can buy have been purchased. But we all know, and even they do in their heart of hearts, that money doesn't bring happiness. But still, the pursuit of that lifestyle that we want to maintain can be like the monkey who will not let go. And if there's any understanding that we Americans need to hear today is what the Lord was revealing to and through this rich young ruler. Jesus said it is hard for rich people to enter into the kingdom. We could easily say it is hard for Americans to enter into the kingdom. So not only is this message helpful for us to better understand how to evangelize the lost around us in this most prosperous land, 
But it's also a message that's good for the church to examine our own hearts to see if indeed we're true disciples. Or to see if we today are truly seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness. People who have wealth most of the time are idolaters. Colossians 3 and other passages like it says that covetousness is idolatry. And what idolatry does is it dethrones God. It overthrones God and His reign in our own hearts. And in the case of money, it promises almost everything to us that only God can give. It promises us, but it can't fulfill it. So, it has a terrible power. It prevents men from turning away from their idol and turning to God alone and trusting Him. And the root of America's idolatry is her love of money. And that love of money is the root of all evil, as we short time ago read. But this morning we have to be honest with ourselves. My flesh and your flesh loves what money can buy. We struggle with covetousness and idolatry. And in many ways, this rich young ruler represents so many Americans today. Does he represent you? As we consider this rich young man, let's think first of all about the man himself, and then we're going to see how the Lord addresses this man. So what do we know about this man? First of all, he was an affluent young man. That would be quite exceptional in the culture in which Jesus was ministering there in the first century. We know in verse 22 it says this young man had many possessions. Luke would describe the same man as very rich. Luke also describes him in Luke 18.18 18 as a ruler. And the way that he introduces this man as a ruler, he's a ruler among the Jews. And Luke, the way Luke puts this is that he is a religious leader, not merely a secular ruler. So some official in the synagogue. Another thing about this man is he does seem to approach Jesus genuinely. He seems to to be genuine in his question. Unlike many of the other religious rulers of the day, he wasn't confrontational with Jesus. Neither was he trying to trap Jesus with his question. There's a genuineness in his responses. An inquiry to the truth. In fact, Mark paints the narrative this way, that the young man came running to Jesus and kneeling down to Jesus before him. He has a spirit that appears to be one that is truly seeking the answer that he was asking with an open ear and heart to receive what was going to be told. There was a burden on his soul that you can see, and that's evident a burden that he wanted to be removed. Well, third, we, we see also about this young man that when he left at the end of the episode with Jesus, he left very sorrowful over what he discovered. 
At the end of this narrative, there was a sadness in his spirit. In fact, Luke says he became very sorrowful. Mark says that he was sad and very grieved. There was an anxiety of his soul. Here we see a religious person, even a religious leader, with a sense of lack in his soul. A spiritual lack. He appears to have come to grips with the truth of what Jesus was saying, but at that time he was unwilling to yield, and one of the reasons he left very sad. It wasn't that he left sad because he was in disagreement with what Jesus said, but because he came to terms with the truth. Here's a religious man who had a God in his heart, but he was not coming to grips on this occasion of what he had to do. Another thing about this man is that he came to Jesus with the wrong understanding of human nature, our depravity, and how to obtain eternal life. In a minute, we'll see that this is exactly where Jesus begins his argument of correction. But this man had a view of man's goodness, not of man's depravity. He addressed Jesus as good, good master, good teacher. He thinks of Jesus as having himself, the man, having obeyed all the commandments. Well, I've done all of these perfectly. He's done them from his youth. He's considering his own good moral character to be that which is good. And what he wants to know is then what good thing can he do to obtain eternal life. This man's view of goodness will lead him to think more about himself than what was actually true. Now that's a principle for us. That's what pride does. It gets us to think about ourselves more highly than we ought to think. A view that man is inherently good always produces some form of then a works-based salvation. And may I say it this way to you Reformed folk here, if you think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, you will also have a tendency to have a works-based sanctification. Achievement. Performance. Moralism. But this rich young man on this occasion, he, he felt comfortable with his inherent goodness to the place where he could testify to Jesus about it. He simply wanted to know at this point what good thing he needed to do to obtain eternal life. But your view of how you think about man and sin will always lead to your ideas of salvation and sanctification. If you believe you're inherently good, then there's really no need for salvation. If you believe that doing some good works will secure eternal life, then you consider salvation as some form of performance to achieve. It's also a view as the way that you think about your sanctification. If you have a wrong view of yourself and 
you have some self-righteousness inherent in your worldview, you are going to look down upon others, look favorably upon yourself, and you are going to then feel of some worthiness which then yields yourself to performance in terms of your view of holiness. But now that we understand this man a little bit more, let's consider how Jesus now works with him in this context to bring him to a self-discovery of the truth, of what was true about the Scriptures, true about God, true about Himself, in light of it all. So what Jesus was doing here, He's going to evangelize a wealthy, affluent, rich, young ruler. This may be helpful in your life as you are evangelizing just about any American out there. But we also need to take heed to the instructions and the way that Jesus is working with this young man because I think there's some relevance to us personally as well. Well, when the man comes to Jesus, good master, Jesus right there stops. He says, why why call me good? So what Jesus is doing there is He's going to correct this man's understanding of goodness. Why call me good, Jesus says. There's only one good, and that is God. No one is good but God. And what Jesus is doing here, and I think it's important to understand, is He is answering this man and questioning this man based upon this man's own perspective. This man did not come to Jesus acknowledging Jesus as God. That's not his understanding. He's come to Jesus as a man, merely a man. That's how this rich young ruler was seeing him at the time. He's not coming to Jesus thinking that Jesus is God, and so there becomes the question. That Jesus is answering this man in his own framework, so Jesus answers the man with a truth that all men, among all men, there's none, none good. Now he's simply taking the theology of the Psalms, of which Paul then later quotes, there's none good, no righteous, no not one. So you've got it wrong, he says, if you think that any human is good. There's only one good, and that's God. Why do you call me good? So the Lord is correcting this man's understanding of goodness. And Jesus has to correct this man's thinking because the man is asking then, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? His view is all off. It's all off from the very start. His whole trajectory is off from the very view of his own depravity or the lack of his understanding there and his own view of humanity. And Jesus needs to bring this correction into full light regarding goodness. This man is operating from a completely wrong worldview. His paradigm is way off base. And yet I wonder how many times folks here among us think that doing something good puts us in a more favorable position with God. Doing something good, do you believe that that puts you in a more favorable position with God? That was this man's mistake. 
And if you think that way, or we are prone to think this way, we need to let Jesus correct that kind of thinking. There's none good. So doing a good thing is not going to work with God. Jesus is going to correct this man's soteriology now. So he addresses man's anthropology, the study of man. He addresses the harmatology, the study of sin in man. Now he's got to address his soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. How are we to be saved? In order to understand how to be saved, in other words, in other words, even to understand or desire to be saved, you have to start at the beginning and at the right root of what the problem is to begin with, and that's man's depravity. This is what Jesus is doing. The man wants to know what he can do, what good thing to obtain eternal life. And our Lord is not going to correct him now by instruction. I think this is important. But he's going to correct him by an experiment. And he's going to bring this young rich ruler along into the experiment so that when he comes to the end, the message will have been understood. He wants this fellow to learn experientially that you cannot obtain eternal life by doing good things. And Jesus will bring this man to come to terms with himself and what, he, what is really important in his life. What does he really value in life? So in verses 17 through 22, the Lord begins turning to that very thing. So not only does Jesus correct his faulty view of goodness... But Jesus next will challenge the man regarding God's moral requirements on the life of every human being. God's law, that's where he goes. God's law is a tool that will correct now the mistaken notion that one can be right with God and put himself in a favorable position with God by keeping the law. If you have your Bibles, let's just take a little excursion on this, because this is a really important point and very relevant to what Jesus is doing here. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 3 and just spend a few minutes there in Romans 3 and a little bit in Romans 7, because this is exactly what Jesus is doing by experimentation with this rich young ruler. Romans 3.20, Paul would that later then clarify, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. You mistakenly thought that through the law would come deliverance from sin. That's how he's thinking. That's how this rich young ruler was thinking. Just wait and try that. Just try that. You try to approach God by ramping up your most earnest endeavor and efforts to keep the commands flawlessly, and if that's the way you think that you're going to improve your position before God, you are in for a rude and big awakening. Because the law of God will have its ministry in your life, 
which God intends for the law of God to do, and it will actually bring you to a knowledge of just how sinful you are. See, that's the law's ministry. Let me show you how that works from Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul is going to explain. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because of some weakness between your relationship with the law? Where is the problem? Is the law sin? God forbid, certainly not. He goes on and expresses down in verse 12, the law is holy in the commandment. Holy, just, and good. Where's the problem? Going back to verse 7. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Now this is saying the same thing that Romans 3.20 is saying, but it's just saying it in a little different way. He goes on, verse 7, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, You shall not covet. And what Paul would later write is exactly parallel with what is going on in Matthew 19. In other words, what he's writing here at a later time in Jesus' life with this rich young ruler is exactly parallel with what's going on with Jesus with this rich young ruler. The law is going to now have its ministry, and Jesus is going to allow that in the rich young ruler's life. Just, just try that. Let me, let me explain this by way of experiment. The law has a ministerial function in the life of sinners, and that's to bring them to a persuasion that in fact they cannot keep the requirements of the law to God. Paul says the law that got him was this particular command, the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. That's the one that got me. That's the one that smote me the most, he says. I would not have known that I was a man like that. I would not have known I was a coveter unless the law's ministry worked its work in me. And you know, we really never know how covetous we are until someone preaches on it or teaches on it from the Word of God and the Spirit begins to have His ministry in the hearts through the law. Until someone begins to make some specific applications of covetousness or the law in our hearts. Because we regard ourselves as living a sacred non-idolatrous life more than we really do. We view ourselves too highly, too exempt from idolatry. And there's a work in our fallen hearts that tends to recoil against authority and against law. That's part of the fallen nature. We all have this. To the extent, that is, that even the more present the command, the more we resist it and do the opposite. And what the law of God is doing, which is really in uh, 
a revelation of the very perfect nature of God is it begins to do its ministry in showing us how far short we fall of that nature and glory. It begins doing its ministry in us. The more you try to keep it, the more its ministry begins to work. The more you understand it saying, thou shalt not, the more propensity you have to go and do exactly what it's prohibiting. And if you disagree with that point, as I mentioned before, I'll bring back an old illustration. You put little two toddlers in a room, and you just watch. Or you take a toddler. I could do this right now if someone would be willing, but I'm not going to. You put a little guy or gal in the room, and they're round with the adults. And you point to an object on the coffee table. Do not touch. Do not touch. You're smiling because you know what's coming. I have been given the law. I have given a command. Do not touch. And no sooner is your head just turned away a glimpse that the child is over there gravitating toward the very thing that you pointed him out not to do. That's part of the depravity. That's the world we live in. That's part of what we need to be saved from. It's a spirit that comes in and is a part of the very old nature of the sin nature. Don't touch the vase. And pretty soon, you wonder after discipline, after discipline, after discipline, you've gone through in five minutes, three times, where you've had to discipline the child for touching the vase to the point where not only were they doing it in hidden cover, now they're doing it brazenly. I've seen one of my kids do exactly that when they were a child. Don't touch that. And you and me are exactly the same way. This is part of the ministry of the law. That's why if you're going to try to endeavor to improve your uh, position before God by the obedience to the law, you're in for a very rude awakening. The law will actually provoke us to do exactly what it forbids. Now there's nothing wrong with the commandment. It's pure, it's holy, it's good. What's wrong is you and me and this relationship that we have with the law. Now don't go and take what I'm saying and say, therefore the law doesn't apply today. The law, No, no, no. It has a particular ministry. And we love thy law. We would say with the psalmist, I meditate on it day and night. It's a good thing. It's holy. We should endeavor to obey the law by the grace of God, with the Spirit of God, but not to improve our position with God. It just simply won't work. So the law knows the ministry in exposing man's sin, and that's what he's going to do with this rich young ruler. He's going to use the law to bring a man to himself to self-discovery and show him indeed he is not good, and there's no good thing that he can do. Therefore, obedience to the law was going to end in his failure. 
So the Lord gives the rich young ruler, this young man, commandments to keep. What shall I do? Keep the commandments. You have to understand, he's not agreeing that keeping the commandments is going to be the way to eternal life. He's bringing this man along in this experiment. And what's interesting is the Lord leaves out the first table of the law altogether. We talk about the Ten Commandments. The first table would be the first four commandments. The second table would be the last six commandments. The first table, as we read this morning, has to do with our relationship to God, our worship to God. The last six commandments has to do with our relationship to our fellow man. And he leaves out the first table altogether with this young man. Perhaps because as a religious Jew in his time, this young man already had a posture that he was thinking that he was good. He probably had no question that the first four commandments were kept. And the Lord didn't have to bring that weightier, more important aspect into the matter to prove to this rich young man of the problem. So he's going to only give him the last six. Now these are man's moral obligation to his fellow man, these last six. And Jesus begins rattling those things off. All six of them. And this man, after he does that, says, yep, I've kept them all from my youth. Kind of his thinking there. And people kind of tend to think about obedience to the law as a, as a, a four-engine airplane. So that as they're going, if one of the engines happens to go out, you've got three other engines that's going to keep the plane up that you can probably bring it safely down. So if there's some catastrophe with one, you've still got three to fall back on. And in general, people overall think they do a pretty good job keeping the commandments. But if one commanded commandment is violated, the entire law is broken. So it's more like if you had a particular chain attached to a safety harness over a crevice, and only one link of that chain were to give way, you would be in trouble. That's probably a better illustration, because if you disobey one command, you've broken them all. That's what James says, whoever shall keep the whole law, the entirety of the law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of the whole thing. So in verses 18 and 19, the Lord's going to imply the, apply to this man the second table of the law, the last six commandments, and see how he responds. And notice what the Lord rattles off here. Murder, adultery, stealing, false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbors yourself. There's the six commandments of the last table. And he says, I do all that flawlessly. I do that perfectly, is how the man responds. But notice what the Lord does with the tenth commandment. What's the tenth commandment? Thou shalt not covet. Notice what he does here. It's glaringly not there. Or, or is it? That last commandment is there. 
But rather than stating it in the prohibition against coveting, Jesus turns it around to state it as what the prohibition frees people to do, and that really is to love their neighbor as themselves. That's what He did with the Tenth Commandment here. Now, Jesus could have done that with any of those six commandments. But He does it with the Tenth Commandment because He knows this is the area that this young man has the biggest problem, and that's covetousness, which is idolatry. So that's why He brings us to light in the totality of that second table, and this is the way He puts it. So far, He doesn't see it. And what the Lord is doing is getting down to the commandment that is going to most expose his depravity. He's about to turn this man's worldview upside down. And he's going to reveal to him that, young man, you have a real problem in this area. That's what he's doing. And the man answers, I've done all that. What do I still lack? That's how the man answers him. Notice how Jesus responds. If you wish to be complete. And does he say, go and don't take anybody's life anymore? That's not what he said. Go and don't ever again commit adultery. That's not how Jesus dealt with him. And neither did he say, go and deal with that last matter about coveting. That's not what he did. But Jesus says, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. He's addressing the heart idol where this man had been fixed. Where he couldn't see it, where he didn't acknowledge it, but now Jesus puts his finger Right on the very issue. He attacks the very citadel where this man's flesh had entrenched itself. This is a man who would respond that he isn't inclined to murder anybody. He doesn't feel the weakness of adultery or those immoral sins this way. He's been faithful. He's never committed a sin with his neighbor's wife. He's not a thief. He's honest above reproach in that way. He doesn't lie to people. He's been a model child from his youth. And what the Lord has done is the Lord now has set up his idol unknown to him and the Lord wants to find him out. And the only way for him to discover it It's for the Lord to take an axe to the root of that tree. Whoa, 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 whoa. Halt, put the brakes on. And now the man will discover for himself whether it's God and discipleship with Jesus or money. That he is coveted, that he is trusted, that is his idol. But the Lord had taught us previously that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible to serve them both. Either a man will lay hold on the other and forsake the one or cling. And there's this contradiction. You cannot have it. And the Lord says you cannot love God and love 
money. You cannot serve God and serve money. And think about how Jesus would be talking to people in America today. About their anxieties. About their things. Or about their financial security. Because of all of the confidence they have in their bank accounts, or their retirement accounts, or their income stream. A confidence in what they have saved up. Or a pursuit in their own lives to have more and more, or to maintain this lifestyle. It drives Americans to obtain, to work overtime, to work multiple jobs, or demand that others work hard for them so that their covetous hearts can be filled without working. Now working hard is a good thing. The Lord commends that. Six days of it. But because of our fallenness, it is impossible to do that without nourishing within ourselves a covetous spirit for more and more. That's what the fallenness will do. More and more. Far more than what we need. But we nurture a covetous spirit to have enough to maintain that standard of living that we so want to maintain. Or we nurture that covetous spirit to obtain a standard of living that we do not yet have obtained. The Bible calls covetousness idolatry. And idolatry sends us right back to the first table. That's why the Lord didn't even need to address that. See, the Lord was working with this man to bring him to a discovery by putting his finger on the man's heart in this experiment that he was an idolater. God was not first in his life. He was not the priority. And though his question may be sincere, he now has to determine where his value is. The man discovers something about himself and God. He had a decision to make which master he was going to follow. And guess what he did? He went away grieved. Anxiously grieved. Very sorrowful, Luke says. Matthew says he went away sorrowed because he had many possessions. He wasn't willing to let them go for Christ. And so he chose to serve the master of money or what money can buy or his lifestyle that he maintained. He was not willing to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow Jesus. He was going to stay in bondage to its power and dominion over his life, like the monkey who would not let it go. That decision would come at a great price. And this is where we have to check ourselves and come to terms with what the Lord is teaching here. Not by instruction but by experimentation, by experience. Consider your life experientially. 
And if the driving consideration regarding your work is the lifestyle that you want to live or maintain, and the amount of money that you want to achieve, it is possible that you may not be regenerate. There is a possibility that you have not really come to terms with the truth of your heart and dealt with your sinful nature and truly forsaken your idols for God. You genuinely want God, but you genuinely also want this other. But you can't serve both. And I'm afraid many Christians feel that we want the best of both worlds, and we can have the best of both worlds, but you can't. You can't. Now, every single person who is saved and who has done what Jesus has done, denied themselves, picked up their cross and followed Jesus. That's how you're truly saved. That's how you have eternal life. That's how you live your life. That is how you come into the realm of justification. But that is how you continue to live in your sanctification. Pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. That's a daily thing. And if you do not find yourself with that capability, then you need the Lord. You need a new heart. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the right hand of God to deliver you. And if God doesn't do that for you, think about the decisions that you will be making in five years, in ten years. And think about where you're going to be in 20 years, or 30, 40 years, eternity, based upon those decisions that you made. Not God, mammon. Lifestyle. Now as a Christian, you, you know that God has given you the power over sin, and sin no longer has dominion over you, including that tenth commandment. You have power over this commandment of covetousness. But for the rest of your life, every progress you make against a covetous spirit will be an uphill battle. By God's grace, with His power, but it will be a battle between flesh and spirit. You will have to fight for every inch of it and every foot of it in your whole life and for your whole life. But when you find yourself that you do have the ability in you to do just that, that is an indicator that you truly do know God. The Spirit is empowering you and you are progressing in your grace, in His grace, in your faith. It's a battle with every one of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But is there progress? Is there power? Is the Spirit working? The rich young ruler is very relevant for us because he is very much like many of Americans. 
And he's like many of Americans who sit in churches on the Lord's Day. And so it is relevant to us to search ourselves and to see if we are God's. To see if truly we are like the rich young ruler. Or if there has been a deliverance and we're just continuing to battle, but by the grace of God, our all is there and we can deny ourselves today, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And if He takes everything away from us that we possess, our loyalty, our love is still in Him. It's fixed, it's certain, and that love will never let us go. May God help us, for only with Him are these things possible. And that is only in Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that Your Spirit would impress upon us our great need for our Lord Jesus Christ this day to save us from all of our sins. And may we cast ourselves upon Him, for we worry so needlessly about the things that we will eat and drink and the clothing we will wear, but how anxious our heart is also with the things of life that go far beyond our bare necessities. We have found that You have lavished upon us grace upon grace, and our cup truly runs over. But we do not want to forget the giver And we don't want to cherish the gift more than the giver. And so we ask that you would square our hearts back up and align them with the truth of Scripture, that with our whole lives we would seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And there's great peace, great assurance that will remove all of our worries when we are in that state of mind, when we are in that place of faith, when we are nestled in your spirit, resting in your provision. So if there's any anxious spirit among us today that is worrying about the cares of the world and is truly your disciple, give that person even now peace. A peace of your provision and that they can just simply rest in that provision this day. Lord, we pray for all of us who struggle with this covetousness, this idolatry that is so prevalent in the world and the gods of this age are so around us all the time. We pray that You would give us the victory over this struggle in our flesh. That Your Spirit would give us a sense of contentment with gratitude and thanks for the things that we do have, but not resting our assurances on those things, but only in the God who gives them. That we would be content with whatsoever Your good hand has given, that we would give to the poor, that we would be giving people not greedy, and not have the love of money in our spirit. We pray that there would be a generosity in our lives, and a love for the brethren, and a love for God that would continue to grow and grow. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that truly is not being regenerate, that through the course of this message that you would bring that person to conviction, that they would cry out to God in Christ, knowing that with them it is impossible They have come to the place where the law has done its ministry and they cannot improve their position with you by obeying the law. And they now understand that. But with God, all things are possible. And you have provided the way in Jesus Christ who did fulfill all of the law in our behalf. And so we pray that you would breathe new life into whoever is here that may not know you savingly. And that you would save that soul to the uttermost, having them cast all of their cares upon Jesus. And today, deny themselves, pick up their cross, 
and follow Jesus. And Lord, there will be great joy not only in heaven itself for the sinner who repents, but there will be great joy among us here today as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.